0: The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes and TheDealWithYield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host, Kyle Reiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperforth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. There has been a lot of coverage and scrutiny of Dicamba and the Roundup Ready Extend Crop system this past year. Joel, when all is said and done, how did this technology actually perform?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of opinions out there on how this technology performed, and certainly as you evaluate the people who are putting input on the performance of it, there's people out there who maybe had their soybeans damaged by Dicamba from drift. Maybe they did it to themselves. Maybe it was in their own tank. And maybe they're on the other side of the fence where they used the extend soybean platform because they had roundup resistant weeds or had other herbicide resistant weeds out there and they had good performance. So I think a little bit of, you know, how did it perform? comes on the place of how you experienced it. And I think that's one of the conversations we want to get into today is how different people experienced it, but also leading to the facts and the things that they can change about how they experienced it. I think that's some of the stuff that, you know, Kyle had some good experiences this year on how people uh, got a hold of uh, some weeds that have been tough in the past and also had some challenges.
2: I think some of the biggest challenges in the space, like Joel alluded to earlier, is He's got the human element, right, as far as growers and retailers and and everybody else that had not been accustomed to using the chemistry. Such a little bit goes a long ways. And everybody threw darts at it must be dicamba drift. Some cases I know that the guys didn't get some of their pre-emergent corn herbicide out. And they left a little bit in the bottom, didn't think it was going to, you know, and some of it was a stinger, a stinger problem, a different herbicide in general, but the darts get thrown at the dicamba. To everybody, when you drive by at 60 miles an hour, you can see cupping. They must say, oh, it's going to be bad. That yield's really going to be bad. Not all cases to where it got cupped was a deficiency on, on
1: yield. Some cases there was. As we look at some of the different claims that were out there and some of the different environments that it went into, there's different formulations of the dicamba product out there, and, and certainly there's a generational issue that went on with uh, with people using older formulations of the chemistry, and those older formulations didn't have the technology in them to reduce some of the volatilization. So I know that types of in formulations was one of the issues out there. I don't know if you experienced any of that.
2: Yeah, there's a few of them. Now the new formulation of Extremax is ninety. 90- percent less volatile than the old clarity and people just say well it's the same stuff different jug it's it's all gonna work well that's not the case it's not the case labels have changed active ingredients have changed there's different products that are put in products to help volatilization and so forth so back in 1967 i believe is when dicamo was first introduced and and these some of these generations are out there saying well look i sprayed it and it killed everything This year we had some weather that came in that got a little cool, a lot of cloud cover, and and we didn't get some of the kill that that some of these guys expected that that they remember it 50 years ago or, or 40 years ago. So it was kind of a little bit of a learning curve for everybody to figure out. For one thing, just making sure your tank's cleaned out. Secondly, make sure your wind speed's right, ground speed, your height of your boom, all that stuff. So it's new.
1: Yeah, You know, before we even get into the, some of the formulation stuff, this represents one of the first labels that was so dynamic in the information going out and, and the restrictions around it. This label is almost a living document of best management practices to help keep a pesticide on target, and you know I, I remember last spring Kyle and I were recording a a deal with yield podcast and we said some things about dicamba about you know what the current regulations were and within three days of us putting that out there digitally all of a sudden the regulations were a little different and there was new products added to the label and so I think the product label this is one of the first times that how dynamic this product is from the things that are allowed to be sprayed on the label to the label changes and even the wind speed how often have you ever seen the wind speed change on a label requirement well, there's a lot of eyes on this specifically and wind speed is
2: usually not one of them that's brought up sensitive crops always is uh, some buffers and stuff like that are, but but wind speed, usually once it's, uh, it's written down, it usually doesn't change within a year.
1: Yeah, so I remember on the uh, pesticide applicators exam that you took when you were an intern. Well, I took it when I was an intern. I passed it on the first time. What did you get? I don't remember. That's a long time ago. I got a 99, just for the record. I missed one question. Do you know what question I missed? He's lying. That's not true. The question that I missed was, what is the ideal wind speed to spray at? And one of the options was 0 to 10, and the other option was 3 to 10, and then the other one was like something ridiculous, like 5 to 20 or 5 to 30, right? And so you go, well, obviously the two that are really high are bad, but wouldn't you rather have no wind speed at all? And that was the one question that I got wrong, and if you think about it, it'd be better to have a 3-mile-an-hour wind so that at least you know where the product might be moving to. So that was, you know, if, if anybody's taking that pesticide applicators exam and you want to get that 100, make sure you study that question.
2: Wind is always good. Whether you're lighting a fire or you're spraying chemistry out there, you need to know which direction it might potentially move.
1: Yeah, so that the label requirements continue to evolve, in, including the training that needs to go on for the upcoming season here. And, you know, as we talk about how the thing performed this year, we always try to make those measures proactive in what our learnings were. And so some of the learnings were People didn't necessarily interpret all of the, the things on the label, like uh, using no ammonium sulfate or using a deposition uh, spray drift modifier with the new extendamax label or the Ingenia label. And so there's going to be a lot of training that comes up around that. But there's a lot of things that need to go right to be successful with this chemistry. And some of those are paying attention to the weather and the wind speeds, but some of those are also about paying attention to what's going in the tank. And that was one of the things that we learned from this year is some of the spray complaints that were out there might not have had a drift control in with them. You've experienced a myriad of drift controls out there, Kyle. What were some of the differences you saw?
2: Well, there was some drift control agents that weren't weren't put in at all. Uh, there were some that were put in some and then a little bit's good a lot of bits got to be better right so there's some glugging in on some products out there polymer based obviously is is a thickener versus some oil-based stuff that we're accustomed to from our company but it all does exactly what it's supposed to do it's coming through different tips it does affect some patterns also so this label's out there for a reason guys and gals is uh, to follow it there's no ifs ands or buts about it it is the law so we need to follow it
0: Kyle and Joel, what successes did you see with this technology?
1: I think some of the successes came in the, the farmers who were out of answers on their old Roundup systems. For a brief period of time, we moved on to the Flexstar, the famosifen chemistries. We switched over to some of the diphenyl ether chemistries. And, you know, we switched back into the burner days where, you know, if it wasn't crispy, you probably didn't kill the weed. And I think some of the things to be celebrated or some of the successes out of this year were around the producers that started with a pre-emerge herbicide and followed that up before the weeds got four inches tall and had a pretty clean crop overall this year. I think those are two of the places where the technology was designed to be used earlier in the season. It was never designed to be used in the July time frame to go out and do rescue treatments. And I think Roundup was never designed to go out and do rescue treatments in the July time frame either. It was just that there was very little consequences for doing it there. And so I think some of the things to celebrate for successes this year were the producers that were able to handle their Palmer amaranth or their water hemp for the first time in, in a couple of years and them not having to make three, four, and five applications of chemistries that were 70% effective on killing weeds. I think one big thing to celebrate in how farmers approached utilizing the Extend system this year was they actually used it as a system. They layered in multiple modes of action, and that's one of the key drivers to lower weed resistance. And as you look at how we launched, per se, a, a Roundup system, it was, you know, use Roundup. It's the only thing you need. It'll do great. And a little good, more might be better. I think that that's one of the major changes as we've looked at the extend system launch is there's been a big agronomic focus on the multiple modes of action and layering in pre-emerges. And that's one of the things, you know, we started to see that in some of the uh, premix combinations is that they're actually asking you to do a post-emergent with a layered pre-emergent in them. So as you're going out there and spraying weeds that are two and three inches tall, you're also putting down another timing of residual at that time. And I think that's a completely different system than we ever launched Roundup into. It seems that the genetics on these varieties have kept pace... On the overall, keeping in mind that the extend soybeans were bred out of a 4.0 maturity. That was where the gene initiation took place. And they used the seed chipper, they used the molecular assisted breeding to bring these out. As with any time you change the trait in a platform, there's always a bottleneck with these. So, you know, what are some of the different agronomics that you saw in your geography this year with the new soybeans? Well, with any
2: soybeans in general, this year was a tough year for white mold. IDC was another one. But white mold was more prevalent this year than it has been in probably 10 years. Just like anything, and I was telling the story earlier today, is it's like a Model T truck coming out, or a Model T car, right? Everything's great. It's got the crank-up windows. It's got the tires. Maybe not as nice as the new tires, but it's a model to run off of. Well, now you've got 2017, 2018 cars and trucks. All of a sudden, they got power windows, power seats, air-conditioned seats. Same thing with, with soybean breeding. You come out with a platform, couple years later, then you're adding in the rest of the stuff. You got the white mold protection. You got the brown stem rot protection. That all gets coupled in there. So if you tried some and maybe the white mold got you this year, know that it's all going to be changing year after year. It's going to be like a whole new animal out there.
1: I think as we experienced the transition out of Roundup 1s to Roundup 2s, it was similar in that way that they brought it down from a, a higher maturity. So if you're in a four zero maturity, you're probably running the luxury of, of having a few more power windows and air-conditioned seats on your soybeans. I think that's how that works now. But more better brown stem rod tolerance, phytophthora tolerance, that you're experiencing that sooner in those maturities. But again, the purpose of talking about the molecular-assisted breeding in this is the speed at which they can get this into a lineup and execute that and i think that's really one of the advances that maybe we got used to using about five six years ago but it's interesting to watch the relaunch of a technology of a herbicide trait with the molecular assisted breeding and i think that'll allow us to bring the yield and the agronomic packages all that much faster just like corn year after year you're getting five to seven bushel better it'll be no
2: different in, in the soybeans I think it's huge that you can run the chipper, you can look at it, you can break it down without even planting it. I mean, you know exactly what's in it. And So there's the money that's invested, which is a ton of money in the breeding side of things, on both corn and soybeans, you're you're sticking the, the dollars where they need to be and you're not wasting on something that's never going to be.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think when I look at the advanced breeding of the extend trait, way back to 2015 where there was very few, Varieties on that platform. Our data at that point says that soybean varieties were averaging about 62.4 bushels, followed by the 2016 year launch was 66.5 bushels, so almost a, a four bushel gain there. And then the 2017 launch looking at a, a 67.5 bushel increase. So, you know, certainly within the extend soybean varieties, they continue to creep up in yield performance, which is one of the primary things you want to make in your seed selection. If you don't have weed resistance, which some growers out there are doing a good job on weed control, and these things aren't a problem, you still have to be able to look at the genetics of these seed varieties and make sure that they're the top performing genetics in your area. Mm -hmm. Then herbicide is secondary. But if you're in the, I have water hemp resistant or palmer amaranth resistance, then herbicide becomes your primary factor. So as we get... More and more experience, and the bottleneck of breeding this through multiple maturities gets broader and broader. The agronomic packages will suit and meet the needs that come along with the yield. I look back from 2010
2: to 2016, we got six years in there, and just looking at the yield results, the entries that were in the answer plot at that time that were 90 bushel or above in 2010 was only 120, which 120. That's a lot. I mean, 90 bushel beans, that's a big deal. And now in 2016, after last year's, it was 695 entries that were over 90. So just in those six years, huge, huge results. So the strides are coming just tremendously and know that they're going to be continuing uh, the breeding programs and the beans are just something that we're really starting to break through and, and manage now to where a century club or 100-bushel yield clubs is pretty much where people want to be.
0: You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with our hosts, Kyle Weiner, Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperford, the Ag Technology Applications Lead. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes and thedealwithyield.com.